You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Warren Hibbert, founder and managing partner of Asante Capital Group. Warren manages global fundraisings for private capital managers, so he maintains relationships with institutional investors across Europe, North America, Middle East, and Asia. In this episode, we discuss the difficult state of the private equity fundraising market in 2023, the outlook for the fourth quarter and for 2024, and some top tips for managers going on the road. Enjoy. Warren, welcome to Fundshack. We're uh, approaching the fourth quarter of 2023. I wanted to ask you what the market for private equity fundraising was was looking like. I think it's getting better. Um, it's, everything's relative in this industry, and I'll explain why uh, I think it's getting better. But it's probably easiest to contextualize that in terms of what we've seen over the last three years. Um, so if we dial back to actually 1920, it was a very strange time. Obviously, you had COVID. You had a very poor, a relatively poor fundraising year in 2020. Yeah, there wasn't much fundraising in 2020, but there wasn't much capital deployment, I seem to remember. Well, so. in fact, uh, so if you if you go back to 2008, so if we really look at the okay. broader yeah, perspective, yeah. Right, um, the peak, which was back to 2007, 8, was about 650 billion raised. That was eclipsed in 2014. Uh, and then you had a record in 2019, um, well north of a trillion, just under 1.3. 2020 was over a trillion. Uh, so it was a good fundraising year, relatively speaking, um, but it was a down year. And it was a, and it was a very funny time um, for a relatively brief period, uh, post which markets really just took off whilst everyone worked from home, invested from home, et cetera. Um, and I, I think it's a case of no one really knew at that time which way was up. Uh, markets were going crazy. Everyone was working from home. You, you know the story. Um, and we didn't really know what the outcome would be. In fact, everybody in our industry were pleasantly surprised, regardless of what you were doing and which, what your role was, at how things had gone crazy virtually. Mm. Um, and everything was working. And it was driving huge efficiencies. Yes, on the fundraising side, but across uh, the spectrum. What you had with that was this huge leap in uh, valuations, in the, in the market performance and valuations. Of tech stocks, mainly. Of right? tech stocks, right. predominantly. And, and this is largely a tech story, really. And so what you had, so you had the very few large players who were in the right place, right time from a technology perspective, and the mega caps who were just there, now really asset managers, being able to raise incredible amounts of capital off the back of amazing valuations and performance delivery, both in terms of realized and unrealized. And what happened in addition to that is, is the deployment pace picked up fantastically. And with that increased deployment pace, so the fundraising pace followed very quickly. And so what you had is instead of funds, generally speaking, going out to market every two to three years, which is a pretty good pace, they were now coming out to market every nine to 14 months. So I am out of date because I was thinking it was, it was more like four to five years they might go to, you know, a mid-market manager. So they're, yeah. they're pretty much constantly on the road. Well, it's a perpetual exercise, yeah. the fundraising. But, I mean, they've but, always but, said that, but now yeah. it really is, right? <laughs> it, it really is. Well, it, it really is largely because you've, also got, you've always got a product in the market if you're an asset manager's size. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but going back to this uh, period, which was really the 2020-2021, you had these very large managers raising at a cadence that the market had never seen before. The flip switch that 
uh, would have put that all to bed was the LPs going, look, we're just out of capital. Um, but there was huge, huge fear of missing out syndrome taking place because those large tech stocks, uh, it's tech stocks, it's tech, tech GPs. Yeah. Um, if you take the top seven, their performance, the beginning of 2021, back end of 20, was between four and nine times net. Mm. So you couldn't, but you could, you're going to lose your spot. You had to re-up. Are you, are you talking global GPs who have a significant proportion in tech or something? Who are predominantly like that? tech. Yeah, managers. predominantly tech. Yeah. Okay. Who are raising? Who are all raising at the time? Yeah. In the sort of low teens to right. low twenties. Right. So it's not the redistributions redistrib- um, are increasing. It's the fear of missing out that's driving this. Correct. Allocate, right. Correct. Okay. During that period. Yeah. And there were distributions happening. Sure. But yes, most of it was on paper in right. terms of the valuation uplift. Yeah. So what you then had was um, these managers raising at an incredible cadence. LPs not being able to say no, and I'm and particularly the U.S. state pension plan market, which is the largest pool of capital to privates, um, going, well, we've got to sort of double down. Mm. But effectively, we're having to borrow allocation forward. So they're committing future years allocation. Oh, so they're eating into 2023. Exactly. Right. So what we saw in 21, and this was around October 21, and it was one specific uh, U.S. state pension we were speaking to at the time, they said, we think we're done for 22. Um, and we sort of scratched our heads and said, well, hang on a second. You mean you're done for 21? It's October 21. No, no, we're done for 22. They had effectively pre-allocated all of their allocation to their respective managers, existing managers, to the end of 22. So over a year in advance. And that that took everyone by surprise. But whoa, what's just happened here? Because no one had seen this. No one had seen this forward committing uh, an extent to which it was happening. And it's not a technical thing. It's like a hype thing. Yeah, completely. So may I didn't completely. realize this. Okay. Uh, and so if you follow that through, and, and the same same again happened in 22, where 23 was pretty much done uh, back end of 22, as far as those managers were concerned, right. the, the LPs. Um, what you then hap- had is the correction. With that, the LPs had really maxed out to the best extent possible, predominantly into tech, their allocations to, private, to the private markets. You had this drop-off in publics massive uh, denominator effect, the distribution started to fall, and it was the perfect storm. Uh, and this was all leading into 23. So 22 was a down year, still a pretty good year if you take it in the context of the last decade. Um, but 20, the first half of 23 actually was the epicenter. So you know, LPs really sitting on their hands, having committed to their existings, getting a new uh, GP into your portfolio was almost impossible from an LP perspective. But to, and again, I'm talking largely at the large end. Um, and so just a very, very difficult time, mm-hmm. uh, incredibly difficult fundraising time because if, if you're in our position raising new capital into funds, established or, or new, uh, first-time funds, um, it was now impossible. I mean, and uh, we'll come, come to how we've managed to mm. achieve what we've achieved, but it was, it was very, very difficult. And in fact, we just completely put a line through first-time funds for, for some time, um, right. which has been reflected in the market stats as well. Well, I have heard even very established, kind of brand-name mid-market managers been on the road for, for ages now. Yeah. And it really surprised me because it's like, okay, so maybe some of the big California state pension funds over-allocated and got caught up in the hype. But, the, you know, we're talking about global capital pools. You think look, really good, well-known managers that used to have a queue lining up they're on the road is that your experience as well there are some really good names still waiting it's a big reset for the market and Mm. it hasn't quite played out entirely Mm. 
Um, so the market, is, as you've heard and everyone's heard many times before, invests by looking in the rearview mirror, mm. as they say. Uh, so the performance of your 2017, 18, 19 funds is what's relevant today. Mm. What's happened in 2020, 21, 23, it's largely relevant. That's money that's been put into the ground, mm. but you've sort of got a stay of execution. It's really what have you delivered mm. prior? And everyone's up against this new benchmark, which is the performance that was generated through 2020, 2021, through these incredibly high periods of massive valuations. Uh, and there they were, they were significant distributions as well. So it wasn't all on paper. The VC mm -hmm. market has had a, a very big correction, relatively speaking, not as big as the public's, but there hasn't been a significant adjustment uh, on the buyout side in terms of valuations. Mm. So, so it's just it's it's just a very um, challenging time for many because whilst you've been very consistent and generated net one point seven one point eight two, that doesn't really stack up to this new paradigm, this new the new benchmarks that have been created. Again, largely tech skewed, hugely hugely tech yeah. skewed in a way. But does that make sense? Because the new benchmarks may just be anomalous. <laughs> And this is, this is one of the issues with the industry is um, how do you decide who you're going to re-up with, commit to, or, or in terms of new, in, new GPs mm. or otherwise, uh, there is a multitude of different factors. Mm. And performance is one of them. Uh, team is probably the most significant one. Uh, and then it's a case of what's, what's the future play? What, why is this going to be so interesting going forward? And I think there are many, invest, many GPs out there who have had to really sharpen their tools and go, okay, we need to up our game. Um, so the performance has been generated, mm. fine. That's an anomaly. Um, mm -hmm. And that's certainly what they're telling investors. And there's a premium for consistency. So if we, the GP, have, mm. have performed consistently through cycle, that gets us lots of points. And it does, mm. but your performance needs to be north of 2x net. Mm. Um, when you say sharpen their tools, you're talking about value creation and just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how do we, how do we show that we're really cutting edge because along with this technology hype and mm. valuation mm. has come technology itself, right? This huge mm. creative of, of, of efficiencies uh, and new means of driving value, new means of doing pretty much everything. Mm. Uh, and those taking advantage of it are at the forefront of technology. So the, G, the tech, tech GPs have benefited massively. Because if if they really have domain expertise, they're going deeper and deeper every day. Whereas the more generalist or mm. others that are focused on multiple sectors, they have been content to just continue on mm. doing what they're doing with the brand above them that drives mm. these raised funds every vintage. Uh, not sort of reflecting on whether their model is world-class world and relevant. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think relevant is probably a bit extreme but really is it yeah. world class and i think that's that's what's really interesting because we we see it we see it with groups groups we meet so many very well known have been around forever um gps who really haven't got the perspective of how the market has moved uh, and how it is moving it's a very real-time thing so this really is it's all about tech um but i mean there, there are large managers who uh, are generalists but that can really go deeper you know can tell their portfolio teams Everyone invest in AI and see what comes of it, or something like that. That yeah. must be the case that there are some. Sure, you, know, and, you and don't have some, to be a tech specialist. You don't have saying. to be a tech specialist, um, and but you do need to reflect on your business model 
and try and figure out what is the best means of getting to the top of the league table effectively. You said earlier, I think performance is key, but actually team is potentially even more important. What do you, what do you, what do you mean by team? When an LP goes in to assess a GP, the performance is obviously very important. But performance, to an extent, can be manipulated. Yes. Whether it's valuations, mm. IRR in particular, right? Mm. Um, mm. As they say, you, you, you can't eat IRR. But, uh, but that is how many LPs are remunerated today, right? the majority of them. So it mm. is a huge mm. driver, and that can be manipulated to an extent. So what you're, what you're effectively backing is the team who are going to be deploying your capital in the next blind pool uh, that you're providing for them for the next decade plus. And you have to have absolute confidence and excitement and conviction that this team, uh, as calibrated, can deliver that. Um, and so the numbers are really important. But if that, if the team is not fit for purpose uh, or you have question marks over it, it really doesn't matter what the prior performance was. Yes. Um, and that's why it is so, so important, particularly cool. where there's team change uh, or evolution, succession, et cetera. Mm. So it's not, it's presumably... When you talk about team, then it's about assessing the individuals, but it's also assessing the cohesiveness of those individuals working together and the organizational structure and whether that's credible and all of that. Correct. And yeah. the alignment. Yeah. And, and yeah. That, can I quite easily uh, figure out what this team is going to look like in the next decade? Yeah. And it, that, that's it's not next year or even the next fund, but it's the next two funds. You mentioned the market's bifurcated and always has been, mm. but presumably that becomes ever more polarized the tougher the conditions get. Right. Are there people that can still go out and just raise at the snap of the fingers or, or right. not? Yes, yes, there are. Um, but it, it's the very few. So rough, roughly today, if you assume that a trillion just over is raised every year, good up, up here or down here, I think this year would be just over a trillion still, although it's, it's a down year. Um, the top 10 managers take roughly 30% of that. That's the top 10. The top 10% take north of 80%. So it's massive bifurcation. Yeah. So we saw this really um, become a, a significant thing post-2008. The bifurcation didn't exist to the same extent prior to that. And in fact, we saw that day to day. So raising funds pre-2008's correction, um, everyone raised. Everyone raised. If you were out of an investment mm. bank or you were out of a consultant and you decided, I've got this thing and I'm going to focus on this region doing this, and even if it was generalist, you were always going to raise. Right? How quickly you'd raise, question mark. You know, whether you'd hit your hard cap, question mark. Mm. But you'd get into business. Yeah. Post-2008, that's not the case. Um, and so there's massive survivorship bias in all the numbers post that period to, to a far greater extent than pre. And then post-2020, albeit not a fi financial crisis, you had the same. So it's the, the sort of rush to safe harbor, which is the mega cap asset managers yeah. uh, in a way. And so they've been able to really get a leap on. They've also been way ahead of the curve in terms of applying technology and thinking about their business. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's an all too obvious but very interesting way of looking at things. You've got these groups called GPs, uh, general partners who go around buying up businesses to create a portfolio and driving huge value by creating better businesses, looking at all different elements of the, the stack and going, how do, we, how do we make this much, much better, bigger, more global, whatever mm. the case may be. Very few put a mirror up and go, let's, let's have a look at our own firm. Mm. 
Uh, and that's kind of what I'm, what I'm talking about is, you know, the, there are many groups and there, there are many GPs out there with a fantastic, um, value creation, uh, stack with, with great means of driving huge value that still aren't looking at themselves. Uh, it's sort of, you know, the management company is something you just sort of drag along whilst you're investing in these businesses, mm. but their businesses have become significant businesses. Uh, and there's a lot you can do with them and you really have to be ambitious and work out where are you going in the next 10, 20 years relative to your peers, because it is such a fast moving market. Mm. Uh, and so as, uh, so that discuss. matters when you're actually raising a fund. LPs want to know that you've got a plan for your own money. Because to some degree, I, I've got sympathy with the idea that, that let's just, let's not focus, you know, let's not, not be too introspective. Let's just make money. Let's just create value in the portfolio companies. And, you know, let's not worry too much about how, how things uh, land internally. I mean, so, so if, you, if you do that very successfully, and you usually find they go hand in hand, the so, uh, introspection yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. focus on your portfolio. Uh, but if you do that very, very successfully, those types of individuals and teams will be doing it on their own business uh, inherently. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. that's uh, my view. And as a result, if you're generating fantastic performance, uh, so raising capital is fairly easy, and that's that's the key element to growth is primary capital raising. There's mm. there's there's a multitude of other things mm. more on the secondary side that that has been built in to augment that. But really, raising primary capital is is the game. Mm. Now, not everyone has uh, a perfect vintage every time from a performance perspective. There's some that are super consistent and very, very good, but we're really getting to the top echelon, you know, 1%. Everyone else is going to have a tough portfolio company and or even a tough vintage. And those can put you back on the sidelines for a decade plus, right? Because it's just, it's a, it's a very long-term game. Mm -hmm. And whilst it's very difficult to, to kill a, a GP who perhaps shouldn't be around, mm -hmm. It's also very difficult for those GPs, particularly of even relative scale, to shift the direction of the tanker. So we've been talking about the extremes to some degree. We've been talking about the, the people that, you know, can raise really quickly. And we've been talking about the fact that not everyone will raise, actually. But the vast majority of people presumably are in the middle. They're decent enough mm -hmm. and they deserve to survive. But it's a really tough market. What's what are they what should they be thinking? And how what? Should they be conceding things and are terms changing and what's what's happening in the in the the mass middle? Terms aren't changing massively. It's always been a topic where, particularly through crisis, everyone switches to well, you know, the terms are now going to change. Um, yeah. Terms adjust relative to supply and demand relative to each GP specifically. So there's still GPs out there attracting premium terms through through cycle. Uh, again, we're talking back to the top one percent. Um, Everyone else, it evolves. So as you grow your AUM, as you, as you get to billion plus in terms of fund size, so you're not getting 2% on your mm -hmm. money anymore. But the, but the 20% is rock solid. And then you now have continuation vehicles as well upon which they're earning economics. Um, yeah. And you can get quite creative on, the, on that front um, in terms of the degree of carry, in terms of ratcheting it up and down. Because that's newer, so they can play around with them. Exactly. Right. Uh, it's less set in stone. But um, but by and large, yeah, you're finding that GPs will continue to exist uh, and and raise capital, uh, and even through crisis, they're not conceding too much. Mm. Um, it's more a question of how much can you raise. It really comes down to that. You know, um, you're never going to go out, and there isn't there isn't a market clearing price uh, per GP. So you can't mm. go out and say, well, you know, we're not we're not 
great or we've just had a rough ride, but inherently we think we've got a really good toolkit and yeah. we can drive value in the next vintage because we've made we've learned from our mistakes, yeah. which all genuinely is pretty good. But uh, the market will decide effectively how much you can raise. Um, and and that's it at set terms. You can't sort of go, well, okay, we're going to charge 5% carry and we'll charge a few basis points of management fee and, and we'll just suck it up for mm. the next vintage because you won't get anything at that point uh, mm. because you've, you've kind of, the writing's on the wall. Um, Cheeky question, but what, uh, what kind of proportion difference does having a good placement agent make? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. Um, <laughs> I think uh, it depends on your scale. You, know, you, you take the poster child in Europe being EPT uh, who have one of the largest placement agents in the world effectively in-house. Right. Uh, they've got over, over 100 people focused on building out their AUM and they do it very, very effectively. Um, you need a group focused on driving value in the area of capital raising uh, at that scale, but ideally all the time. In the same way that you'd have a group focused on driving operational value within your portfolio companies, uh, you, you need someone to be working on how do you grow your business from an AUM perspective. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, many GPs haven't quite got yet. Which Presumably is, you need economies of scale in order to... You, you do, but so in-house or yeah. externally. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah, one way or another. One way or another. One way or another you need it. Um, and most importantly, it's recognizing, uh, and we can debate you know, whether it's 50-50, but I would certainly argue that 50% of your business is raising capital, at least 50%. Uh, whereas many believe that you know, we're out there to go do deals. We're out there to go do deals, drive value, and, and generate returns for our investors. And every couple of years, and, and amazingly, it shouldn't be the case, but many still believe this, every couple of years we'll hit the light switch and raise more money. And those in that camp, probably not going to raise again unless their performance has just been amazing. And, and you can, if your performance is consistently fantastic, you raise yourself. That, that's fine. That's easy. And you probably need one IR person really just to make sure that everything's running smoothly. But investors are marching to your mm-hmm. steps. So that's, that's fairly straightforward. But again, it's kind of relevant to the discussion because it's, there's so few yeah. uh, in, that, in that zone. <clears throat> so having a party, internal or external, who has a perspective and day-to-day is watching what LPs are doing, particularly in today's markets where I still believe uh, no one knows which way is up, mm. is critical. Yeah. What, are there any differences between the North American fundraising market and Europe at the moment? Sure. Uh, have been for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Simply because the largest pool of capital to privates uh, is in the US mm. uh, and will be for some time to come. It's it's moving slowly only because the US is a very mature market. And so uh, the element that is the largest, which is the US state pension, pension plan market, um, is, re- is sort of cap- tapping out uh, at its maximum allocation to private equity. So that will continue to move ahead, but uh, the growth is getting to the point where uh, it's going to be ceded to other groups Sovereign wealths, other large pensions, um, mm. less so Europe, but more Asia, uh, and to an extent the Middle East. So that's that's quite interesting. Um, but uh, you're finding that um, really that the U.S. has been such a strong market, and the the predominance of capital has been so so uh, favoured towards North America that um, that in tandem with the fact that it, it's the oldest, so they've they've learnt more. It's a far more developed market. The returns have been better. Going 
getting in your car and driving down the road to, to your investor is very easy. And, and from the investor's perspective, investing in your backyard from a currency perspective, et cetera, has been mm. pretty easy. So it's been self-fulfilling to a large extent and has remained that way for a while. It's been more a question from that market, a question for the US market as to how they diversify and whether they even need to. Um, and uh, for quite a period post-2008, there was a retrenching back to, let's just do it in our backyard. Then... Only in sort of 2016, 17 did we start to see them really going, we need to rebalance into Europe. Mm. Not 50-50, but we need to put more into Europe. Um, and that that pulled back again post-2020, but is now starting off. It, it's kicking off again. But Europe is um, is a market where it's there many there have always been many questions around to what extent do you need to be in Europe if you're getting the returns mm. and the diversity in terms of type of manager mm. in our backyard in North America predominantly the US. Yeah. Uh, and the only other real question was, okay, so how, how exposed do we want to be to Asia? Because Asia is moving really quickly. Yeah. China is super interesting and mm. we've got to be there until mm. they can't be there. And so that's, that, that is an, a change now that we're seeing where uh, that may actually favor Europe. Right. Because yeah, that yeah, capital yeah. will shift mm. across. So the domestic pools of capital, what, what kind of proportion in terms of U- European GPs looking to raise money uh, um, North America, obviously, hugely important, but yes. there are domestic sources of for capital, sure. Right? There are, there are, but the European market is much smaller market. Right. But yes, uh, and I th- and just as a general rule, you know, your local investors are going to be the ones that know you best, uh, know you personally as a GP because mm. you're you dine at the same restaurants, whatever the case may be, um, yeah. and you you always see that natural affinities. Where, in fact, if your local pensions are not invested in you. Uh, Investors outside your, mm. your region start to go, well, how good are you? Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, proximity matters, doesn't it? It does. And then there's the kind of cultural things. And I mean, uh, the topic of ESG feeds into this to some degree because that's become a, a, a kind of a polarized issue in mm. the US itself, but also between North America and, and Europe. And, you know, Europe is very much pro and, and not all of North America is. And so a topic like that, I mean, that that's a delicate one to to tread through, is it? It's a complicated one because it's a question, I think, in many minds as to what extent it's window dressing versus genuine uh, impact, mm. right? And there's, there's ESG, but there's impact. And there's a ton of ways to describe what GPs are trying to do, many with the right intent, uh, some with a question of trying to attract capital from those LPs that are just focused on impact or ESG. And when you distill it, the, the reality is, Investors that are focused on impact and ESG is a significant proportion of investors. It doesn't mean they're impact and ESG investors. It doesn't mean if you label your product ESG that you're immediately going to raise capital from those investors. Investors are still looking for the same simple things. Strong team, great track record. And if you're doing the right things for society and the world, which most the best GPs are anyway, uh, they've just rebranded as, mm. as ESG and impact, Fantastic. You took the boxes and you raise money, mm. um, but not the other way around. Yeah. So maybe the lesson there is not to get too obsessed with the labeling and actually just do the, yeah. do the do. Do it, do it, do it properly. Uh, yeah. It's one of those things, the understatement works. You know, if you, if you do it well, mm. and we've actually had this with uh, a GP recently where we've had investors go, you actually, we're going to put you in our impact bucket, but mm. they're not an impact GP. Mm. Um, but they just, the reporting is phenomenal and they, they really care about it and they do a lot of it. Uh, but that wasn't the reason they got into business. 
Um, we've relatively recently um, seen uh, the rise of private credit funds as well. How's that affecting, let's say, the overall balance of you know, the opportunity set if you're a fundraising as a private markets manager? Is that eating up some of the alloc- private equity allocation? No. So separate, it's treated yeah. separately. Um, <clears throat> separate, in many instances, separate teams on the LP side reviewing the propositions. Um, a lot of that capital came has come out of the fixed income buckets. Ah. And that entire market has come to be what it is today, which is this, this juggernaut post-2008 as well. So you had the global financial crisis happen. Uh, investors were desperate for yield. Uh, for just some degree of cash back because it was pretty barren. It was just desert. Uh, you know, were you ever going to get your capital back regardless mm. of what strategy you, you were investing in? Um, and and so, and so and on top of that, very obviously the banks were in a tough position, to say the least. Mm. So this credit fund market came to be and has grown incredibly since. But a significant portion of that has come out of the allocation to fixed income. What's going to be interesting going forward, uh, and it's and it's here to stay. There's no question. The banks are going to be in, are going to have ups and downs uh, at infinitum, in my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're certainly having a bit of a tough time now, mm-hmm. uh, and that'll happen through crisis because we we push the limits um, mm-hmm. in, in the industry all the time. And the credit funds are better able and aligned to fix things versus try and take the keys, which actually makes it a bit of a smoother landing when you do go through the downs um, and more attractive to GPs and more attractive to GPs and uh, they're able to take more risk etc they understand the mm. assets better they've got a, their approach is from the inside as opposed to you mm. know from a sort of banking uh, perspective where um, you're just a line item of thousands mm. that said what is going to be interesting is um, the extent to which that capital starts to flow back to fixed income now that you have a pretty attractive yield coming through um, and and how that starts to now compete with fixed income, which was zero. Therefore, of course, you moved it across, mm. and and that's massive. I mean, the fixed income markets larger than the the public equity markets. The fixed income market is so large; it's circa 130 trillion. That um, a very small proportion was shifted across into privates. Mm. It's not all going to shift back. Uh, so sort of no one's really noticed. Is is my view? Yeah, it might might just be worth keeping your hand in as a large institutional investor into yeah. the private credit market just did. completely yeah what's your view on on private credit because in terms of so we've got a rise rising rate environment and let's say it plateaus here or slightly higher is it does it grow over the medium term in that environment or does it require a low interest rate environment to become to grow in the way that private equity has grown in the last decade i don't so. think it's uh it's going to grow to the same extent it has over the last decade plus um, because it's really gone from zero to hero uh, yeah. quite quickly because your competitor was your competition being largely the fixed income mm. bond market was at basis points and you could deliver uh, net sort of six to early teens even um, mm. even on the, on, the, on the senior secured side. Mm. So that's very, very interesting, but you had no competition. You now effectively have competition for capital um, mm. and that I think is going to mean that they've got to fight a bit harder, mm. but you're also going to have this, and you already have, but you, this bifurcation is going to become even more extreme. So it's going to be those that are quasi banks who can really provide any financial solution for you, yeah. uh, who, who won't. And what's your what's your 
kind of medium term outlook on the private equity fundraising market as as a whole you started by saying but by by being kind of cautiously optimistic so, so why and so um back to that discussion around where the market is uh and why 2022 and 23 are going to be tough fundraising years mm. our view is 24 will look a bit like 22 and so we're potentially back to uh, a steady fundraising environment in 25. That's that's our view anyway. Um, but the epicenter was the first half of this year. And you can see the sentiment marginally improving, which is why I emphasized relative. You know, it's, it's marginally improving. Investors are starting to get a little bit excited about what is to come in 24, mm. uh, where we haven't seen that for quite some time now, um, which is great. And there's capital out there. As I said, if you look at the fundraising statistics year on year, we're in a period that's way up on where it was a decade ago. Uh, you're having up and down years for sure, but it's it's still in the trillion plus and I don't see it changing dramatically. It's just where that's going. Yeah. Uh, and um, and in that, you know, everyone, everyone sort of thinks on it as a very big market, which it is, and there's plenty of capital out there if you're, if you're raising roughly a trillion two every year. Um, but if that's only going to a handful of managers, for the most part, mm. how do I, as one of those marginal managers, raise money? That's that's the big thing, and that comes back to your point around some very established groups who will raise, but are going to miss their targets in some cases dramatically. They will continue on, but uh, but that's going to be the the story to watch: is to what extent do they walk away and go, okay, well, we're still around, um, we've raised money. We might not be able to do as many deals. It might be a slightly more concentrated portfolio. Mm. Stroke, we may take advantage of a lot more co-invest. Not a bad thing mm. uh, to, for LPs to deploy into our assets yeah. and build up again. But what do we need to change such that that never happens again? Mm. Uh, if you if you go on as a, well, it was just a tough environment. Yeah. And uh, and so when, when we raise our next fund in 26, everything will be fine again. You're in trouble. What's your what's your top tip in the heat of the moment? You know you've got a fund to raise. Your top tip to a GP: What's the the common mistake that you'd watch out for? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's one. So uh, we have a diligence questionnaire where GPs always list out their common most or their, their key lessons learnt. Huh. And the most common lesson learnt is we didn't replace management quick enough. Right. Every GP's got that that lesson learnt. Mm. If you were to apply that to fundraising, it's we went out too early. So that's my piece of advice is if you're going to, before you plan to go out, you need to have a pretty good sense on what your fundraising is going to look like before you launch. You've got to have a very good sense on at least 50% of your capital that you want to raise and when that's going to come and from whom before you launch. And as you mentioned earlier, it is, it is a perpetual exercise. So you're always fundraising. Even if you've only got one product, you should be speaking to your investors and spending a lot of time with them. Um, such that they, you 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 can get the answers from them around. Are you there to support me, and for how much when I launch the next fund? That's your existing investors. Then you've got to do the same for new. Yeah. You're going to have a far. You should have a far greater degree of certainty around your existings, obviously, than your new. Uh, but I say obviously, actually, not in today's environment. So many investors, certainly through the last two vintages, have have switched out of existing managers into new. Uh, or have had the problem of not being able to re-up with all their existings simply mm. because they didn't have the allocation yeah. and the capital. 
So, so it's been tough and you've got to have that perspective, which means you really need to make sure that you've actually mined the market in your pre-marketing exercise right. very, very carefully. Right, the readiness is all. Yeah. How long have you been doing this? Uh, roughly 20 years. Right, and, yeah. and you set up your firm? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How's that going? 13 years ago. Fantastic. Uh, really good. Um, it's never a straight line like most things in life. Uh, but ours has been a pretty extreme curve, um, through the last 13 and, um, and yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, and that sounds fairly fluffy, but, um, the most important thing to us as we keep on saying is the culture of the firm. And if you're having fun, uh, that's, that's everything. Cause everything comes with that. If you've got a team that are motivated, aligned and having fun, it's, it's like having a, a boat with, uh, with four big engines, um, and uh, and it's a lot of the good things come from that. It's become more challenging as we've grown, obviously, as it does, particularly when everyone's not under one roof. Um, mm. So we've got five offices around the world, 74 people, um, and it's maintaining a singular culture and that drive, passion, and energy um, that uh, is something we spend a lot of time on every day doing. Sounds like a good culture and philosophy. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Warren. It's lovely speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Lots of fun. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. This podcast was designed and produced by Linear B Group, a leading content marketing agency focused on financial and professional services. Thanks for listening. To